Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an Associate Professor of Management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Today, I have Dr. Candice Brunette de Basaguay. And doctor, I'm going to emphasize that because it's recent. I believe it was April 2021, Candice. And so congratulations. That's wonderful. And for our listeners, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Candice. She is the special advisor to the provost for Indigenous Initiatives at Western University in Ontario, Canada. And she worked on, in her role, uh, one of the first ever Indigenous Initiative Strategic Plans at Western University. In fact, the first strategic plan for Indigenous Initiatives at Western University. And I'm really excited for this conversation today. Candice, what more can we learn a little bit about you before we jump into our conversation? What would What should listeners know? Thanks so much for having me, Scott. It's a real honor. Yep, my name is Candace Burnett de Bossigay, and uh, I am a Cree woman originally from Treaty 9 territory in northeastern Ontario. And I work in uh, London, Ontario, which is outside of my, my territory, my, my ancestral territory. I work in, and live in the lands of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Lenapewak people. I guess as a as a Cree woman, I bring I bring that lens, that indigenous lens, to the work that I do at the university as a, a special advisor and also a faculty. More recently, a, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education, where my research focuses on educational leadership and policy in the context of universities in Canada. Talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about your research and that intersection of leadership and policy. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my my research really is born out of my experiences. I've been working in universities or in educational contexts for almost 20 years. I guess like a lot of people working um, in the context of Indigenous education, we've been working within educational institutions to change them, to make them more responsive and inclusive of Indigenous peoples and of Indigenous knowledges. That work started to take on I guess, new energy after the release of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015. 
But the work of Indigenous scholars and Indigenous educators far precedes that. But it really started to take momentum after the TRC released its 94 calls to action in 2015. And that that work comes out of, of the Indian Residential School Survivor Settlement Package. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, um, I always like to recognize that survivors of residential schools, which There were many, many Indigenous peoples that were forced to attend residential schools in in, in our country for over 150 years. So generations, uh, generations and generations of people within particular families and communities were forced, legislatively forced to attend these schools. And these schools were paid for by our government and they were uh, delivered by churches different churches delivered the education. So it was a a Christianized educational process. And it was really the intent of residential schools running for over 150 years, over 150 schools across the country, and over 150,000 children. And my own in my own family, my grandmother was apprehended from the RCMP, the the uh, Royal Mounted Police to to attend this school. She was physically removed from her home at the age of seven, and she was forced to attend this school, which was an Anglican school in her situation, where she was prohibited from speaking Cree. And she was taught that to be Cree, to be Indigenous was backwards. It was savage. It was uncivilized. And she was taught these things and indoctrinated into this belief system that the government wanted Indigenous peoples to believe in order to assimilate. And the purpose of residential schools was assimilation, to assimilate Indigenous peoples into the dominant society. And the underlying purpose of that was to get rid of the Indian problem. And I'm using quotation marks there, was to get rid of the Indian problem in order to take land. And, wow. and so there was economic, political motivations for the government to run these schools. So in 2008, the government finally recognized that this happened and the last school closed in 1996. So it's quite recent. You know, there are people that are my age, I'm in my 40s, that have attended residential school. It's wow. not a thing of the past. And the other thing to recognize is that the residential school system is part of a much larger colonial system in Canada. And it has to do with how Indigenous peoples are legally uh, recognized in the country. So for Indigenous peoples, First Nations people in particular, all of uh, our experiences are bound up within the Indian Act, which is a federal legislation that governs First Nations people's rights and education education, health, and governance on reserves in Canada. So it continues, you know, that colonial relationship that Indigenous peoples have with the federal government is ongoing. And residential schools were a part of that construct, but there's that that system is still ongoing. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is about educating the general society about that lineage and that ongoing historical Um, relationship and embedding that education within our education systems. So I work in a university and I I work in the faculty of education. So we train teachers in my area of study. So it became very important to me as an Indigenous woman with this experience within my own family to stand up and, and take a leadership role with working within an educational institution to help educate people 
and to make changes so that generations coming after me will have will have a, an inclusive space should they want to come to university and and participate in society people will understand that history in a previous conversation we had you you said something just really beautiful in the phrasing was it struck me and and you said undo the silence would you talk a little bit about that i i think that that's your passion that's your mission to undo the silence is that framing it up correctly absolutely what i always have to remember is you know although i have this experience even in my own family this reality and these kind of stories were commonly told around our kitchen table you know they were things that i knew in my bones because i saw the impacts and i experienced the impacts myself and and saw them in my own family members but for most canadians it is not known because indigenous peoples and 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 the general population for the most part live quite isolated from each other and we don't have conversations about about these things and it's it's written about quite extensively in academic literature and quite a well-known fact that there is what we would call there's this beautiful scholar that actually comes from the territory that I work in so I always try to try to recognize those scholars that are originally from the territory that I work in she's Lenape and her name is Dr. Susan Dion and she talks about the perfect stranger mm. and she she talks about how there is this sense among many most Canadians of indigenous peoples being the perfect stranger and that relationship that divide between indigenous and most canadians it serves a purpose and it mm. serves to perpetuate that division and that kind of getting people off the hook from having to actually take a look at the conditions and the history and 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 the realities of indigenous peoples and their own implication within that relationship because as we become Canadians as any anybody takes on that whether they're new new immigrants or their families have been here for a long time we all benefit from the silence and historic amnesia that the country has when it comes to its relationship with indigenous peoples we we benefit or we don't benefit from that and what Susan Dion says is we need to address the perfect stranger within our education system in order to help undo the silence yeah. that that exists and education i believe is a uh, full of possibilities of course if you look at the residential school system it's also can go the other way and can be very oppressive but when we have indigenous peoples in the driving seats and helping to inform what we're being taught and the stories that we're we're sharing in our classrooms we can start to undo the the historical amnesia that is pervasive within the education system and and policy has made a huge impact you know the truth and reconciliation commission calls to action have been a game changer there is no doubt that we are having different conversations because of that policy today. 94 94 calls to action. Yeah. What are some that stand out for you so just so listeners have an understanding of of what that means and and maybe a few that have made a difference based on your experience. Well, I I'm particularly interested and I feel a sense of accountability the ones that relate to education. So there are at least 13 of those 94 calls to action that are specific to education. 
some of the ones that we are really spending a lot of time attending to are mandatory courses in medical fields. So when we're training doctors, nurses, anyone that has, um, you know, contact within the healthcare system, having mandatory courses that deal with the Indigenous history, but also Indigenous people's realities and unique distinct rights. What what a lot of people don't recognize or understand is how Indigenous peoples in our country have a distinct legal relationship with the government because of treaties. Yeah. And um, as as such have constitutional, internationally and nationally recognized rights. And so we need to do a lot more education on that in the context of healthcare, but law as well, um, media, so journalism programs, but also other programs that have to do with the media. There's also been more of an emphasis and a call to address language revitalization. Mm. There are, are many Indigenous languages in Canada that are critically endangered because of residential school. When you think, you know, people were prohibited from speaking their language, literally, you know, many people tell horrible, horrifying stories about when they spoke their language in these residential schools, they were literally beaten for for doing that so the trauma of that is very is very deep and we need to find uh, new ways to to help restore those languages so that they survive because within indigenous languages are indigenous knowledges and indigenous knowledges are not inferior you know although that's we've been indoctrinated to believe that indigenous languages indigenous knowledges are complex diverse they have a con- connection to the land that, you know, in a time of global warming and all of the, the different social political challenges that we're facing, I think Indigenous uh, knowledges have something to offer the world in terms of that connection to land, that relationship to land is embedded within our languages and our knowledges. So for universities and educational institutions to spend some time to invest in Helping Indigenous peoples reclaim and restore that in our education system, I think, will be really important for Indigenous peoples, but also important for for everyone. As you think of your work at the university and you think about the strategic plan, talk about that level a little bit. What are some initiatives at the local level uh, on campus that you have passion for that really, really excite you? Well, I remember when I started at Western in 2012, it was a really different time. I started as the director of Indigenous Student Services. We called it Indigenous Services at that time. And so at that time, we had what we had a model for Indigenous education at our university, which is the student services model. The only unit that existed on our campus, what well, one of the only units that existed was Indigenous services. And it basically supported Indigenous students once they got there. Once they got there, there were some services, some wraparound supports. It was very um, not super supported in terms of resources and funding, but but there was some funding in place and some staff members there, a handful, less than a handful yeah. of staff members. And, and we, we supported students once they got there. And sometimes we did some outreach programs to try and invite them in. you know, going into the high schools and promoting that university is possible place for for students to go to. Since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we've shifted and many universities have shifted their model. So they are going from a student services model to a whole of university approach. 
And this means that there are more senior administrative roles that are looking at policy, governance, curriculum, base planning. They're looking at championing and including Indigenous peoples and perspectives across the university. So it's not just in the student affairs unit that's just going to support some students once they get there, which some people have argued that that approach is almost a a quasi-assimilatory approach because you're helping students adapt to the current environment. You're not actually changing, proactively trying to change the, the university. You're expecting Indigenous students to come to be included, but it's a conditional inclusion. So they come in on the university's terms and they they, they adapt. They need to change. Yeah. This new approach, the whole of university approach, is a little more dynamic. And it involves, obviously, you know, pe- Indigenous peoples are going to university to learn to change and grow. But at the same time, recognizing that the institution it is inherently Eurocentric. It takes Arguably, there are some colonial elements to the institution that need to we need to change. Policies do not always serve Indigenous peoples, and so we need to address those proactively. And that's the shift that yeah. we're that's the moment that we're in 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 higher education. I think in a lot of institutions, we're in this moment of reckoning that these institutions are not perfect. <laughs> there, and when it comes to marginalized groups, not just Indigenous groups. Black people, other marginalized groups, LGBTQ2. I mean, there are a lot of different groups, women. The the norms of the university are not inherently inclusive to different groups. My my interest has been uh, on Indigenous populations in particular. So we really do try to bring an Indigenous lens to the work that we do. And the strategic plan has been impactful. Um, Just to give you an example, we are in the process of creating a brand new space, an Indigenous learning space at Western, which will be in addition to the student centre that I talked to you about, which has, you know, offices and a computer lab and elders and takes an Indigenous approach to student services. But this Indigenous learning space will be a gathering space for faculty and community partners and students to gather together and learn in an Indigenous way. So we have hired an architect. Her name is Wanda Della Costa. She's the first Indigenous woman architect in Canada. She takes a place-based approach to architecture. So the space has been... Like we've been in the planning process for over a year to develop, repurpose this. It's an old building, but it's being repurposed and significantly repurposed. She's worked with our community to come up with the the, the design principles. And it's going to be just an incredible space with an indoor and outdoor gathering space that's going to reflect Indigenous peoples in our territory. And, you know, also Indigenous peoples, more broadly speaking, there will be reflections of all sorts of different nations around Turtle Island, but we want to spend particular attention to the local land and place that we're located. So we've worked really closely with the communities to have a space that reflects who our community is at Western, which is so exciting. And it's a significant investment for the university that I don't think would have been possible without the political pressure and the leadership and the vision of the TRC that has really helped us have different conversations on university campuses. So I have two lines of questioning I want to go to. One, that must have been a, a Herculean effort to influence the government to even put the commission together. 
decades of work, decades and decades of work, I would imagine. I would love for you to tell just maybe a few stories about that. But then Mm -hmm. I would love to hear from you, even as you are doing your work on campus, what are some of the leadership challenges you still face? I love the questions. (laughs) Uh, They're really good questions because I all, and I do this in my dissertation, my doctoral work. It's so important to recognize and pay homage to the decades and decades of work that precedes the TRC, you know, because Indigenous peoples are, we're going on maybe our fourth wave of Indigenous peoples who have come into the academy. Indigenous peoples up until the 1960s, if we decided to go to university in Canada, we had to give up our treaty rights. So we were like, there was a legal um, stipulation that we needed to assimilate in order to get educated. So this, you know, really detracted from a lot of people going this route. You know, it was seen as a threat to our indigeneity to go on to university. So we have to recognize that Indigenous peoples are quite new in the grand scheme of things to higher education, to having a place within higher education. And it's through uh, what we call in Canada, in the, the States, it's a similar movement and they're interconnected, the American Indian movement in the States, but in Canada, it's called Indian control of Indian education. We don't use the word Indian anymore, but it is still, you know, a reference when we pay homage to that movement. And that's a political movement that really advocated for Indigenous peoples to start programs in universities like Native Studies, we call it Indigenous Studies now, and to even get these offices that I referred to, the student affairs offices like Indigenous Student Services, those kinds of initiatives were really pushed during the 70s. You know, when Indigenous people started to go into universities in the 60s and 70s in larger numbers, not huge numbers. I mean, in 19... I think it it was 1961, I pulled out a stat, only about 200 Indigenous peoples were in universities in Canada in that, wow. at that time. So we're really, just to give you a, a sense of how new we are to the academy, that I work with people who are the first PhD to graduate at Western. Wow. Yeah, and that's only in 2012. So, I mean, this is not typical to every university. Some universities are have been, um, have had more presence. Than others, but Western, I think we're 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 on the you know we're we're starting that journey. I always like to recognize that although the TRC has really shifted the conversation, people are people. Indigenous peoples have been struggling and pushing these agendas for decades. And yeah. it if it weren't for the you know that work to to lay that foundation, we wouldn't be where we wouldn't have the conversations that we're we're able to have now. The other thing that we need to recognize is that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was actually came out of the largest class action lawsuit in Canadian history, where 86,000 residential school survivors, including my grandmother, wow. took Canadian government to court and won. And from their settlement package, the Indian Residential School Settlement Package, they paid, the survivors paid for the commission to happen. So our government in Canada has been very reluctant, but has been compelled through legal action to do the TRC, but has not been super supportive when we when we really look at it. So it's, I think, important to recognize that Indigenous peoples have struggled to get to this place. And yeah, they've taken legal action and they have resisted throughout history to get us to this place. We have a lot of people in power 
with a vested interest in not undoing the silence, right? And it's yep. it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. It's tragic. How about you? Even on campus, what what as a leader on campus do you experience? The good, the bad, the challenging. What what experiences do you have? Because again, there's a large system in place that is not designed or built for this work, correct? That's right. Yeah. I mean, when we look at the university model, it's been imported. It's been yeah. imposed and imported from other parts of the world, from European yep. countries to the Americas. And even the disciplines themselves are very Eurocentric. You know, they're premised on certain types of knowledges. When we look at the, the history of how Indigenous peoples have been taken up, of course, Indigenous peoples have been subjects to research for, you know, Western research for hundreds of years seen and othered through Eurocentric colonial lenses. Yep. So part of uh, the work of early scholars, Indigenous scholars and allied scholars, you know, has been naming that, naming that, that colonial project in the processes of their research and undoing that. So I, I really draw on decolonial theory and praxis because decolonialism is, is about naming and understanding the ideology of colonialism and how it's present in every day. Everything. Everything in our institutions, in our structures, but in in, in our just our, the myths of Indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples have been represented, misrepresented in all sorts of ways that are taken for granted. Part of the decolonizing project is is understanding and seeing that within ourselves like I mean I've internalized that we've all we've all been marinating in those those ideologies and what we need to do is is unpack that and see it see it and unlearn it and then start to shift the conversation indigenous peoples have knowledges indigenous peoples are contributing members of society they have contributed to this nation <laughs> they have you know they have um they're diverse. They're not one <laughs> monolithic culture. They are, it's not a culture. Even to reduce Indigenous peoples to a culture, I, I find is, is problematic because Indigenous peoples have knowledge. We have the capacity to intellectualize <laughs> and theorize, and we have ways of doing things in our communities that gear to different value systems that, that have potential to contribute to society. It's a, a large intellectual process of critically interrogating that and then putting it into practice, which is, I think, always unsettling for people. And I think in my leadership practice, I take on that work. I, I uh, acknowledge who I am, my own subjectivity. I'm unapologetic about it. And I find in leadership, there tends to be this kind of norm to be more neutral and this doesn't mean that just because I bring my subjectivity, my indigeneity into my leadership practice that I'm not fair yeah. or I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm incapable of being unbiased. Like I, but I think there's this sense sometimes that if you lead too much with who you are, you are that. And I find that that's really interesting to me how that object, the, it's a very scientific managerialist kind of mentality in leadership uh, that you need to be objective, that yeah. objective, this objective positioning, this rational objective, it's a very masculinist kind of ideology and in, in, that's pervasive in leadership 
practice and discourses that one not lead with their subjectivity. But in my work, it's I, I have to lead with my my subjectivity. That's what brings me my credibility when I'm working with Indigenous community. It's the first thing people are going to ask me is, who are you? Where do you come from? And, <laughs> and, and then I have to develop that relationship. And that relationship is developed through sharing our stories and coming from our experience. And that's a different, I think, approach than the dominant way of doing things in administration anyways, like I'm speaking really broadly, but uh, I think that's been a real challenge for me. And that came up in my research like this. I'm not just talking from my experience. I've done research on this. My, uh, my research, my doctoral research has sat with uh, Indigenous women administrators across the country. And, and I asked them to tell me their stories. And that was, you know, one of common uh, things that I heard from people, and and I can see it in myself as well. That people are a little, they're not used to that. Yeah. <laughs> so that you know, that's something different that I think we uh, come up against in our leadership, among many other things. Well, Candice, what else did you find? What were some other themes as you were working with these leaders? I talked to Indigenous women administrators who are leading Indigenous work. So, you know, it's a particular segment of the population. It's not just talking to Indigenous women operating in a, any any unit in the university. It's really a unit that's trying to drive change. Yep. So I imagine um, that, you know, this change process is really, is really challenging because policy became a tool, an yep. instrument that was really important to helping them do their work, developing strategic plans, doing other policy change process. So what a lot of uh, the participants that I spoke with talked about was that a lot of the existing policies and procedures were barriers for right. the Indigenous Inclusion Project. So what they had to do was go and change, update old policies. Like, for example, within Indigenous communities to do, you know, in community engagement, try to get Indigenous peoples engaged with the university, Gathering around food is really, really important. Mm. Well, there were policies at many universities that guarded against outside caterers or certain companies that they didn't have agreement with to come and do catering on campus. So this became a barrier and they had to update and change those policies in order to have traditional food made by, you know, in a traditional way by community members happen or smudging, for example, smudging is another um, common practice within Indigenous communities where there's the burning and it's not a lot of smoke. It's a little bit of smoke of sage. Yep. It's used as a purification ceremony and often done in at large events to start the gathering in a good way. And that was, again, another barrier where Indigenous women administrators had to proactively go in and update and change the policies in order to be more inclusive of Indigenous peoples. And another example was uh, hanging and recognizing Indigenous nations original to the territory through flags, flying of flags. So there are certain parameters within many universities that you only fly certain flags and you can't fly other ones. So all sorts of work has to be done in order to make even those simple practices of yeah. gathering around food, smudging, and flying a, an Indigenous flag on campus. 
Well, I said earlier, everything. I mean, literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Um, oh. Admissions. So the other thing when, when doing change work is you're having to interrupt this flow. There's a flow of, uh, you know, there's a, a way of normalized way of doing things. And when you become that person that has to interrupt, well, wait a minute, we have to change this. You become the problem. Some women talked about was being put it placed in that position to have to interrupt the status quo was an enormous weight and it accompanied a certain amount of emotional labor. And there yeah. was a, a cost that Indigenous women administrators talked of, about the great cost that it took for them to challenge the normalized ways of doing things over and over and over again. So that cost for them often was their well-being because they were um, often not always greeted with with ignorance, not understanding the deeper logics, the problematic colonial logics that they were interrupting. And then they become the symbol of the problem because they're when it's that one, um, I draw on that one scholar, Sarah Ahmed, when you point out the problem, you become the problem. (laughs) And a lot of the women talked about that. But nonetheless, doing that work, uh, what I frame in my research as a, a type of refusal, and we often think of refusal in a really negative way, you know, like as being like unreasonable or difficult. But I think, you know, when we're trying to make positive changes, it is important, but it takes an enormous amount of courage to, yeah. to do that and stamina to, to do that on, on a regular basis within these institutions that really aren't made for us. Let's be honest. I mean, you, you, you said some really important words there, courage, stamina. I mean, it's just chipping away at to your point, some of these institutions, even the smallest of things about the flag that, again, if we are going to have have artifacts in the community that represent, that's that's important. That's critical, right? Whether that's the architecture or whether that's the flags or whether that's any number of different, I mean, thousands of different elements. And I'd never thought of it that way. When you point out the problem, you become the problem. You're disrupting the flow of the organization that was built in this way to to service certain populations only. <laughs> I'm not oh, well, laughing because that's funny. I'm laughing because it's just oh, it's mind boggling. It is. <laughs> I mean, you you have to laugh sometimes, right? Because it's so mind boggling. It's you know that's a way of for Indigenous peoples. Humor has been a way for us to cope for over the years. You know, it has been our medicine. It helps release the tension. It, what what else do you do? I mean, I can recall another example. You know, of things that we've we've had to to push back against and and is a uh, convocation. So we've done we've done some work on convocation. You know, to try and have it reflect um, Indigenous peoples. And so there is a, a policy at our institution and many other institutions that allows Indigenous peoples to wear their traditional regalia during convocation. So that was a huge uh, moment for us the first time, the first year that we could do that. And to see the honour and uh, the um, what it meant to our students, like that's what it makes it all worth it when you see 
the impact that it has for Indigenous students. And we're a small percentage of the, the total population, you know, at, at Western. We should, at a national level, we, sh- we should be closer to 5% of the total population at our institution. We are at 1.5%. Okay. So we have a lot of work to do to increase the representation of Indigenous students at, at our university. When it comes to faculty members, uh, it's even lower than that. So representation is a, is a good first step, but I'm even talking you know, about going deeper than that is shifting, you know, what we're teaching in class. So that's, uh, you know, what are the policies and how do they support Indigenous peoples maintaining who we are and still, you know, contributing to the university environment? Candice, you are at the nexus of my favorite place. You are a woman who is has her doctorate and has studied this, and you are doing the work. And it's it's just incredible. I have so much respect because... Again, those words, uh, courageousness, uh, resilience, grit, it's, it's not easy work. To, to your point, I mean, you lit up. It was beautiful when you smiled. You said to see, the, to see those graduates, when, we, when, when that shift occurred, uh, that's just absolutely wonderful. And so thank you for the work that you do. You're changing people's lives and existence. And to your point, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, but it was also really interesting to hear you describe how, look, we even need to begin to look at some of these things through a, through a different lens and that, that we've just taken as the way it is and that's been normalized and rethink so many different aspects so that we can provide that experience for the 3%, the 4%, the 5%, the 6 the 7%, the 8% of students down the road. And I think that's God's work, whatever God means to you, <laughs> whatever yeah. that concept is, uh, you're, you're earning points out there in the universe. <laughs> yeah, we would call that Gijem Manado. Yeah, like that greater creator. Um, yeah. yeah, that sense of spirituality is very strong for Indigenous peoples. And I know that in an institution like a university. That's been a that's been an interesting movement too because I can I, I can find that I, I have found that some people are uncomfortable when we start to talk about spirit but when you're working with indigenous peoples and indigenous ways of knowing it's not a religious understanding but it is a, a deeper spiritual understanding of, about how we do our our work and we can't leave that at the door either so I wholeheartedly agree well so Candace as we wind down for today. I always ask guests what they've been reading or listening to or streaming, and it could have something to do with what we've just discussed. It could have nothing to do with what we've discussed, Mm -hmm. but what's caught your eye in recent months that you think listeners should maybe know about? Well, there's a great little podcast that people can, can tune into with it's on CBC radio in in Canada. It's, it's a great podcast uh, hosted by Phelan Johnson, who is just an incredible artist. She's a playwright and she's she's now hosting unreserved okay and it it takes up a lot of contemporary current affairs by indigenous peoples in canada and i i try to tune in regularly i i find uh, the guests fresh exciting um get a real pulse of of some of the current affairs for indigenous peoples and it's fun 
it's a fun, it's a fun one. Okay. I will put that in the show notes so that listeners can access that and check it out for sure. There's, I, I just recently um, wrote a book review for a book. And if people are really in, interested in Indigenous education in Canada and the movement that I talk about, decolonizing and indigenizing education, this book is, is a great one. Uh, Sheila Kotemik and Taima Moke Pickering wrote a book called Decolonizing and Indigenizing Education in Canada. And I think this this is a really it takes up a lot of the the complexities and the tensions that we're you know grappling with right now and articulates them really well so I think if people are intrigued by by some of the movements in in education that's a good one okay I'll put that in the show notes as well so that people can can access that Candice I hope we can Dr. Candice (laughs) congratulations again thank you I I hope we can continue this conversation I hope you'll come back and thank you for the work that you do you're at this nexus of a really really cool place uh, in in multiple ways thank you so much thank you for the work you do thanks for inviting me (laughs) okay have a great day okay bye-bye If you have come this far, maybe you're willing to spend a little more time investigating and learning about this topic. The practical wisdom in this episode is that there is always more to learn. I want to be sure to thank Candice for the work that she does. As I mentioned in the episode, she is an individual who has done the research has explored the theory, and she's also doing the work. And for that, uh, I know I am grateful, and I'm sure many of you are as well, that there are people doing that work, Uh, like Shelley Spiller, the episode directly ahead of this episode. If you get a chance and you have not done so, please listen to that episode as well. Take care, everybody. Be well. Take a look at the documentary that I've placed into the show notes and make a difference out there in the world. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phronesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.